Welcome back to Tea Time with Kate and Keith. Currently, I am by myself. Keith has gone on vacation due to Thanksgiving break. Um, but today, we are here with the CEO of GFI, Stephanie, who is currently getting her degree in health and education and uh, health education and promotion. And so she came because she had some time today to sit down and talk about the struggles of mental health during our current pandemic. So how are you doing today, Stephanie? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing just as well as I can. (laughs) (laughs) So how do you think COVID has affected mental health currently? So COVID has taken its toll in more ways than one. It's not just a physical aspect of people catching it. Um, mental health has actually deteriorated severely during COVID as well as suicide rates and domestic violence rates are up all across the country. Um, A lot of it has to do with the isolation and the social distancing aspect. Some other factors of this increase we're seeing is the fact that people, they're losing their jobs their money is very tight all around. We're not able to see friends and family that we normally would see. So there's like a number of existential factors that plays into the reason why you're seeing an increase in mental health deterioration. Yeah. So do you think that this is like due to feeling isolated? Because I know personally from my own experience, you know, I'm still in high school. So being isolated from the normal high school activities and being able to see my friends every day and dealing with like in-person classes has been really hard to like not have this year. Yeah. So the funny part about that statistics have shown that addiction is actually genuinely linked to lack of human contact. I did a whole, I had a whole class on this where they say that the best way to help people through their addictions is actually to contact them and give them that tactile touch. So if you think about it in this pandemic, while we're not able to see each other, we don't get that human socialization, that reaffirmation and that contact. So addiction starts to slowly rise and addiction is heavily linked with depression and other things that we're experiencing at the moment. Yeah, that's crazy to think about, you know, and you get into this habit of like being able to physically see people every day and then within seconds you lose all of that. So um, now, who do you think is more at risk during COVID to have their mental health like deteriorate? You know, that's a hard one because you have the elder community, which they obviously are isolated for multiple reasons and they have not been able to make contact with their family members that they would during this time that have given them hope. So they have different risk factors there, but then there's also children who have the, one second, It's also children that have the highest risk of being impacted by COVID because studies have shown, you know, your adverse childhood experiences kind of make or break you into adulthood. So if you, if you haven't heard of ACEs, it's again, it's adverse childhood experiences, a pandemic such as this one would, would mark on an ACE count. And basically the number of ACEs that you gather, the increased number that is the more likely you're going to fall into addiction, depression, um, isolation, and have 
severe mental health issues. So if I were going to be truthful, I think the children who don't really understand what's going on is at the biggest risk of deteriorating mental health. And does this include the teenagers as well? And those kids who usually already suffer, suffer really bad from like mental health disorders. Yeah, because you know what, like teenagers actually have the most mental health issues documented for various reasons. You're still considered adolescents. So when I say kids, I am including that teenage demographic in there. So the likelihood of seeing increases all throughout different high schools, especially not being able to interact and socialize with each other is pretty prevalent. You know, the thing that people don't realize high school is a big escape for some kids. Some kids are facing domestic violence. Some kids are facing food insecurity. And at this time, it's only getting worse. So yeah, I definitely believe your social pressures, uh, your social pressures of trying to get through everything, that would be very difficult to manage right now. And do you think the lack of uh, escaping through like extracurricular like activities after school is also playing a big role into that because we can't do any of that during social distancing? Yeah, absolutely. Like you have to find ways to combat things and make yourself happy. So if by not being able to go to these activities, you don't have an outlet for it and you don't really understand at this age why it's so important to have those outlets all your understanding is you enjoy it so without having something to substitute for it you're definitely going to deteriorate in that mindset yeah I definitely know that I've spoken to a lot of like my friends who are very big sports people like the kids who are on football teams and stuff like that they're struggling because they're sick and tired of like doing weight room and not actually being able to play um and having that escape of constantly having like a football game a week. So, um, yeah, that's, I totally can see that, especially speaking as a teenager, it is definitely getting a lot more difficult to, you know, handle these circumstances. Um, so what are some signs and symptoms that you, uh, are having poor mental health and what do you think that you can do to change that? So feeling fatigued all the time, is a very big indicator. If you don't want to get up in the morning, there's a good chance that you're suffering from a mental health issue, feeling nauseated, feeling like you don't want to eat and, or sometimes feeling the opposite, like you're overeating, you're binge eating. All of these are signs of mental health deterioration. There's actually quite a list that are, you know, very, is very common, like not being able to pay attention it's something that people overlook a lot of the time. Like a lot of the time they think like, oh, it's just a different issue that I'm having. No, lack of focus is another sign of mental health issues, fatigueness, you know, like you could actually start showing physical symptoms of it. Like you could start vomiting, diarrhea, dizziness, swelling. These are all signs of poor mental health. And then, oh, sorry, the other part of your question, what can you do to combat that? Do you mean from a medical standpoint or do you mean from like just in any form? Um, just in any form so that people can take a look at this and maybe help themselves at home. Okay, so the first thing I recommend to everybody is always get help, reach out and start getting into counseling. Counseling is for everybody. It's so 
stigmatized and that's not okay because counseling is for us to walk, talk out our feelings and to change behaviors and patterns that are making us dissatisfied. People think that if you need counseling, it's because you have a weakness. Really, you're just trying to enhance your strengths already and trying to deal with your problems and your issues. And you can't get that when you're just talking to friends. So get into counseling, get that recommendation from your doctor. Make sure that your nutrition is intact because a big component of your mental health and feelings of depression and sadness has to do with your nutrition, especially right now. There's a good chance that all of us are severely vitamin D deficient. And if you are lacking vitamin D, you need to be on supplements because vitamin D deficiency can lead to depression and thoughts of suicide and anger and frustration, which people don't realize it's something that you overlook. So make sure you're eating healthy. Exercise is another big component to it. Exercise, it's kind of like Legally Blonde, right? Like she said it best, exercise releases pheromones and pheromones make you happy. So happy people don't kill other people is what she said, but it's a true statement. So try to get at least the recommended amount is 30 to 45 minutes of exercise per day. And other than that, you can do daily mantras. What I mean is write a positive affirmation for yourself and repeat it to yourself every day for at least five to 10 minutes a day. And soon enough, you'll start to believe it. And you should always have a gratitude journal. In this gratitude journal, you should be documenting at least three things you were thankful for that day. And how you do that is taking at least 10 minutes of your day just to observe your surroundings. All of these have been statistically proven to lower your thoughts of depression, anger, and frustration. That's very helpful. And I think just speaking for the rest of us fellow teenagers out there, uh, what do you think would be very helpful to do in a circumstance where a teenager is scared to speak up about their mental health or can't get the help because their parents aren't willing to help them? So for teenagers, here's the thing. Sorry, one second. For teenagers, I'm like trying to find the words to be sensitive about this. Your parents aren't always right. If I'm going to be really blunt about it, there is an adult that will always help you. So you can privately speak to your doctor. Your parents don't have access to those decisions. You have the right to body autonomy as soon as you turn, I believe, 12. So as soon as you're 12, you can start telling your doctor, hey, I'd like to have a private chat with you. I'm feeling symptoms of depression. I really don't want to talk to my family about this. But you also have high school counselors that will talk to you and they will provide these services at no cost to you as well. So utilize that or there's resources in the community like there are actual texting apps where you can meet with psychologists at the click of your phone and they offer financial aid. So there's a limitless amount of resources, especially during COVID. I think that that's really helpful because I know I've spoken to a few friends who are, you know, not in the best home life situation. And a lot of them have expressed that their fear of talking to their parents about their depression and feeling like their parents will just brush it off. So I thank you personally for that. <laughs> um, and when do you think it's important to start seeking help? Seek help the moment you feel like you're off, even if it's slightly. And I want to I don't mean to backtrack, but I want to backtrack about the fact that you 
stated that some of your friends are in poor home lives and they don't think their parents will understand their depression. That might be likely true. Like family background plays a big factor into whether or not a child gets help, but you can break those generational curses, so to speak. And you can go seek out help with someone else. If your parents aren't comfortable, it's also feasible for you to say, Hey, I'm having trouble talking to my parents, but this is important to me. I need to go find another adult that's in health education right now. And I want them to explain to my parents why this is important to me, because you don't want to, you don't necessarily want to leave things unsaid if you can avoid it, because that will leave grudges. I have seen people in my generation still holding grudges against their parents for things they didn't tell their parents when they were 15 years old. You know, like learn from our generation's mistakes and don't be afraid to speak up and speak your mind. I don't believe in cursing out your parents. I don't believe in being disrespectful, but I believe in asserting yourself in such a way that that they have to listen. You take the time, you write down your feelings, you try to cut your emotions out of it and you tell them point blank, this is the problem. This is what I need from you to help me fix this problem. Are you going to help me or not? Or am I going to have to find someone who will? Yeah. And for my fellow teenagers out there, this is something that we've been learning in since elementary school that your voice matters and that you should seek help in any way, shape or form. While we're on the topic of school and high school, I would like to bring up the fact that this is the best example I can give now is obviously we're dealing with our own social distancing circumstances and everyone else is a little bit different depending on, you know, your school system and things that are going on in your town or your places. But something that came up from my experience was that our school was letting us do fundraising in person, social distancing in like a shopping mall or in a plaza or something, but they will not let us hold in-person meets with a certain amount of children or students. And I think personally, that's kind of crazy that they would expect me to go and do something for money and not out of, you know, to do something to benefit my mental health or benefit me as a student. Um, So can you talk a little bit about how you're experiencing the hypocrisies of the COVID rules and regulations? Oh, absolutely. And I'm sure somebody's going to get mad at this. But the truth of the matter is, you have to really wonder where the government is at when they make these rules and regulations, because we're at a point in history where half the United States population, the elementary schools are going back to school because it's supposedly safe, but we're releasing hardcore prisoners onto the streets because they're worried about overcrowding and COVID. We're releasing sex offenders back onto the streets with so, without so much of a trial or anything that we're typically having because it's unsafe, but yet it's safe for our children to go back into these schools. And you have to wonder where where the thought process is in this, as well as the grocery stores. You know, for a long time, you could only go to a grocery store from a certain time to a certain time. And when you went in, they regulated water, milk, um, grapes, everything, because there was a food shortage, apparently. And yet you see a bunch of leaked videos of farmers dumping gallons upon gallons upon gallons of milk. 
and food because they can't get their goods out because the government is regulating what they're doing. It's completely, it's completely, you know, hypocritical of the government to say, hey, you know what? You can't go to school. You can't go to these events with people that make you happy. But what, but what you can do is make money for us, or you can, you can do, you can go shop or you can do this, but you can't meet as a church or do anything like that. Like if we're making these regulations, they need to be science-based and they need to be safe. And the funniest regulation I have to tell you is the curfew. Like I, I would like to see where the study says that COVID comes out from a certain time to a certain time, because if we're trying to practice social distancing, telling everybody they need to be at home by like seven o'clock or nine o'clock doesn't make any logical sense to me personally. Yeah, to me, that doesn't make any sense either. And there's another one that I'd like to bring up, and I don't know if everybody has heard about this because it depends on the district, but there's been a lot of talk with my district that if we decide uh, second semester that it is safe enough for us to go back to school and we are no longer in purple tier, that the students who will be given the opportunity to go back to school first will be the kids who have IEPs and the kids who are in the special needs classes. But to me, I don't understand how that would be a good test to bring students back because you're asking special needs students who potentially don't have a well enough understanding of social distancing and wearing a mask. So then they would go into the school system and they would be touching things and, you know, maybe not social distancing. And then the chance that a kid gets COVID, the rest of the students will no longer have access to school. Well, that's funny about that. Like, we got to talk about the disability, well, like the disabled class, because they get used as guinea pigs all the time. The disabled class doesn't get a lot of, they don't get a lot of credibility. Yes, there's a bunch of kids at different levels. And I understand the idea that like they need the most help. So it'd be smart to put them in these situations. But you're also talking about kids with terminal diseases, putting them out there in the middle of a pandemic. So you're saying they need the most help, but you're willing to risk their lives to see if this is going to work on other students. You're putting the most at-risk population into the line of fire. And what's going to end up happening is, yeah, they could teach them these basic skills to wear a mask and to do all those things. But, but as you know, I have disabled children and I have atypical children and my atypical child, when I took her to the store with me, she still at a moment's notice without thinking got very emotional because somebody cut her in line, started crying, used her mask to wipe off her tears and blow her nose in her mask and then put it back on without so much as an afterthought, you know, like the logic of, okay, well, this, this group of disabled people are going to be able to tell us this or not. Like you don't have enough diverse populations to get an accurate study is what I'm getting at. Like to have my atypical student do the same thing as a regular, as a, as one of my disabled students would do is kind of like, okay, you're not getting an accurate read. What you need to do is take a small population from each of the populations and say, we're going to go back and see how this functions. Because if you're only getting one specific group, you're only getting one set of data and you're not going to get enough information to determine whether or not you can feasibly open a school with such diverse populations. Exactly. And that's where I wanted to ask you about your opinion about it, because 
to me, I have a brother who has special needs and I just see him on a daily basis. He interacts socially just at our house. And for me to think about how my brother would be put back into school before I was or before um, the kids who are in those average to uh, AP level classes, like, I don't know how that would be a good test because the kids who are not put in a special education program, like they might not understand the social boundaries. They might not understand that just because that's how they are. And my brother doesn't understand social boundaries to begin with. So I don't know how he would handle social distancing and being able to wear a mask and not get sick that way versus someone like me who could go into a school and say, you know what, I understand that social distancing is really important and that I need to follow the regulations. I need to wash my hands. I need to do all of this. And sending somebody who doesn't understand that as a test, that doesn't make any sense to me. No, absolutely not. And the thing about that is nobody talks about the fact that the disabled population is actually technically exempt from wearing masks. And that's why you need that diverse population in there because most people don't realize that and they'll end up yelling at people like who are autistic or have Down syndrome who don't understand the concept of wearing a mask and why they need to do it, even though they've been taught maybe 20 to 30 times because it might be a texture issue or like some type of other issue that would physically cause them pain. Um, if you get a bunch of atypical students and they don't understand, they're going to start bullying that person. They're going to start being mean. But if you prepare everybody as a whole, then they can prepare themselves for like, okay, well, they're not wearing a mask. So we can do our best to remind them or we can do our part to make sure that they're washing their hands or we're staying away from them because they physically can't. It's kind of like the concept of immunizations. Some people can't do immunizations, but we do them still as preventatives because of the concept of herd immunity, you know, like in this environment that we're growing up in, we really need to be able to rely on each other, not just as individuals, but as a group collective to, to really get through this crazy time. Yeah. And I would, I think that something that really plays into this, um, it making it very hard for people who actually have, uh, mental or physical disabilities when it comes to wearing a mask, there are so many people who are deprived of their right to actually not wear these because people walk around and they say, oh, well, I have a physical disability or I have a mental disability, when in reality, that's not true. So a lot of people are fudging the system, which then makes life harder for those who are actually struggling. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Even before COVID, people taking advantage of disability rights is the reason why they're struggling so bad. Like, to touch upon that briefly, like the fact that so many people are like, well, I can just get a letter from my dog to get an ESA, my animal become an ESA. That's where my daughter's doctor hesitated for almost a year to sign off on an ESA doc for her because so many people are using it to cheapen their rent, cheapen this, and they're not actually ESA animals. And I find it really, really disheartening when I have kids who when they're in the house they absolutely love each other no one treats them differently but if we're walking out in public they have to watch each other and just make sure like okay are we acting to a social norm right now because personally I don't care if I see one of them freak out like I I mean I don't let them be rude about it but if I know it's a stimming issue it's not something that makes me 
upset, but it upsets people as a society just kind of shows you we still have a long way to go. Exactly. And I would like to end it here. So I'm just going to ask, what would you like our audience to take away from the conversation that we just currently had? COVID is a real thing. I think all these videos on TikTok and social media saying COVID isn't real is idiotic and it's spreading false narratives. I, my ex-brother-in-law has COVID, you know, like I've had friends lose family members to COVID within a matter of days. My daughter's ABA therapist said her perfectly healthy grandmother died within two days of COVID, of getting diagnosed with COVID. It's a very real thing and we need to take it seriously, especially if it's simply something as wearing a, a mask or washing your hands. Minor inconveniences, yes, but the sooner that we do these things and keep in mind what scientifically is proven, we can get out of this situation. We're one of the last countries to still be in a lockdown. There are a lot of countries that are opening up. There's a lot of countries that don't even have to go out and wear a mask at this point in time, and they have zero cases of COVID. So it's about precaution, education, and being prepared. So please take it seriously. And if your mental health is deteriorating through this time, then seek out help. It's the perfect time to do so. Virtual, virtual classes, virtual therapy, it's all out there in the public. And if you email anybody from Tea Time with Kate and Keith or at GFI, we can give you resources and we're happy to do so. Thank you so much for coming out today, Stephanie. And for the rest of you guys, please go check out GFI, all of their social media platforms and their website. Bye guys. Bye.